want to tell you about one of our partners, Quetzal Education Consulting. Quetzal Education Consulting is a queer, black, and indigenous women-owned firm offering anti-racist consulting, PD, coaching, keynotes, workshops, and more. Their newly released Abolitionist Teaching Workshop series coaches and prepares teachers to further develop abolitionist practices in the classroom. Find out why they have been called The Future of Educational Justice by Dr. Bettina Love. You can book a free consultation with Quetzal by calling 510-397-8011 or visiting quetzalec.com. That is Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L-E-C.com. And if you mention you heard about them through Two Dope Teachers, you will receive a 5% discount on their Abolitionist Teaching PD series. Once again, you can book them by visiting quetzalec.com on their Connect With Us page. It's great to be here. Welcome back to the final Habitually Disruptive episode of the year 2021. I was going to make some kind of 2021 joke, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to treat it like it's any other year. It's any other year that is ending right now and that is going into another year that I am sure nothing will be different or unusual or anything about it's just another year well what's going on everybody you are here with your 2021 colorado teacher of the year gerardo muñoz aka the illosopher aka executive producer creator of content let's see how many other titles i can create for myself um, of Two Dope Productions, co-host of Two Dope Teachers and a Mike, producer of The Exit Interview, also a doctoral student um, who is very excited to get back into my classes next quarter. Uh, listen, everybody, if you are interested in knowing more about Habitually Disruptive or in just supporting the great content that comes at you every week from Two Dope Productions, feel free to head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Two Dope Teacher. Teachers, where for as little as $5 a month, you can help us keep the lights on, bring this content to you, which we think is fire. And uh, shout out to all of you, our patrons, from the $5 uh, a month uh you know, level all the way up to those of you who have given more than the max 15 that we're doing. We just really appreciate you. We know that our content has been kind of stop and start over the course of the last few months, but we're committed to continuing to bring you the best content possible, plus some fire guests coming in 2022. So I guess it won't be that unusual and mundane. Um, it will be it will be uh, a great year with uh, with some amazing guests, some amazing places we're getting connected to. 
um, and we're going into community with. Um, so, you know, I'm up here, philosophically speaking, on different ways that you can engage, that we can engage, that I can engage in disruption and interruption to make a better world. So that's what we're at right now. And, you know, honestly, it's wild because at the time of this recording, um, I'm going into my final day as the, 20, as the uh, Colorado Teacher of the Year. Now, people tell you um, when you are a State Teacher of the Year, you will always be the Teacher of the Year from your year. And, you know, I think that's right. I think I'll always be the 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year in case, and unless CCSSO or CDE or some other outfit decides to strip me of my title for whatever reason. No way that could happen. Um, I will always be the 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, and that's kind of dope. Um, but it is it is ending, and the year 2022, um, I'm just really excited to know what that, what that, um, what it portends. Did I use that word right? Um, what it portends, what's happening. Got a couple of dope things happening pretty soon. I'll be heading out to, uh, the college football championship, um, next week. So that's going to be cool. Kick it with some more CCSSO peoples and, uh, fellow state teachers of the year. Shout out 320. Um, so that'll be really dope and just really good to see some people. Gonna run a 5K. DC, we got this. We will run past everybody. So yeah, um, and I also think 2022 is gonna be really amazing because you will also get to know, hopefully you'll get to know um, Autumn Rivera, Colorado's 2022 Teacher of the Year, who is incredible. This is an incredible educator, middle school science teacher who saved a lake and got it designated as park space, succeeded in doing uh, probably a lot of things that I didn't succeed in doing, but succeeded in also meeting the governor, <laughs> which 2021 was a long year. We were all sitting in our houses, still didn't meet my governor, but that's okay. Um, as the philosopher Pox said, I'm mad at you. It's all right. You up there making moves. I'm making moves. We're doing our thing. So got some stuff on my mind. Uh, it's about to be New Year's um, and hoping that everybody's New Year's Eve is safe, um, that it finds you in good health and in good spirits and that everything is good in your world and that the new year brings good things for you. Um, on my mind is, um, man, just like everybody else is COVID, right? Um, you know, the, the Omicron variant um, is spreading very quickly. I was going to say it was spreading like wildfire, but that would be a very bad choice of words given uh, the Marshall fire that is burning here in Colorado. Um, some friends and family have uh, been impacted by the fire already. Some lives have been lost, not in my, my friend and family circle at this point, um, thankfully. But it's a pretty scary time, so I will not use that metaphor. Um, it's just really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm pretty ambivalent about going back. Um, I think one of the things that Americans have failed to do is to just sit with contradictory information, right? Sitting here with ideas that maybe just aren't super compatible with each other and just kind of wondering what this says about the moment that we're living in to know that these ideas don't necessarily fit that well together. Um, so the fact is that in-person learning is better for young people's social emotional health than remote learning. And that's something that I think we've all learned 
over the course of this last almost two years. Can y'all believe this? We are about 21 months, almost 21 months into this whole thing. It's just amazing how, on the one hand, it feels like it's gone by really quickly um, in the sense that I can't keep up. But on the other hand, um, the person that I was at the end of February of 2020, Proud Papa at my daughter's quinceanera, um, maybe one of the last in-person events that a lot of our people did before, um, before COVID shut us down. That person is just not super recognizable to the person that I am right now. And I'm still processing that. I think you've heard me process that a few different times. And I've gotten in community with some really amazing folks. Um, Habitually Disruptive will be bringing you some incredible guests in the coming weeks and months. And so just stay tuned for that. Um, But, you know, I'm here. I'm boosted. I'm vaccinated. I just went and got my flu shot today so I can maintain campus uh, clearance for my doctoral classes, but I'm still really ambivalent. Like on the one hand, as I was saying, um, students' mental health really was harmed um, in during remote. I'm not going to say by remote. I'm going to say during remote because I think there were a lot of things going on beyond just kids being in their rooms and not being able to see their friends. I think that there were a lot of um, a lot of uncertainties and a lot of fears and a lot of frustrations that just were left to fester for a lot of our young people, um, especially in what was, what's supposed to be really formative times in their lives. Um, students aren't going to get that back as much as we think that going back to normal is just going to make everything normal. Um, they're not going to be able to get that back. And so I'm a believer in keeping students in person safely um, above all. But see, here's the thing. It feels like the goalposts continue to move. Uh, Posted some funny memes um, from Adrienne Marie Brown regarding um, the world of of COVID at this point. And, uh, you know, I don't want to memify this whole thing, but the reality kind of is that we can't... Sorry, I had to step away from the mic for a second. The reality is that um, it's becoming really hard to trust that some of these government agencies that are supposed to be nonpartisan are not being influenced by non-scientific elements. And I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, I'm not an economist, thank God. Um, <laughs> I am just a person that is kind of wondering how did we get to this place where we can start changing uh, quarantine time and where we can start making decisions that are very convenient as Omicron cases um, tend to escalate. And so being back in person isn't in and of itself an issue for me. It's more the fact that we are not in person with any of the real safeguards that we need. What is the state of testing? What is the state of vaccinations? And what are the things that we can and should be doing to ensure that we are not exposing kids and their families, particularly kids from communities of color and uh, from backgrounds that are working class or in poverty, um, we're not exposing them to, you know, to these problems presented by by COVID-19 um, and this variant. Now, we know 
according to some medical experts, that the Omicron variant is at once significantly more transmissible, but also less severe. And so I guess that's fine. But it also relies on a lot of different things. And we, and you know, there's just a lot here. And, and one of the things that really kind of bothers me is that it feels like a lot of this stuff really ju- does rest on the shoulders of parents. You see, parents. And there are two issues when it comes to parents and the Omicron vi- variant and keeping schools open without massive outbreaks. The first is capacity. Do families have the capacity to do the right thing? I think about families that really, really need options for their students and that, you know, for a lot of these families, and I'm talking about communities of color, communities living in poverty, working class families, even families that are just, you know, working to make it month to month uh, with two incomes or more. And frankly can't afford childcare that it presents a real hardship and to folks with younger kids so do those families have the capacity to do the right thing can they say well my kid has some symptoms my kid has a fever my kid has the sniffles maybe i need to keep my kid home because i'll tell you times that I've gone to work and said, well, it's not that serious. Like, I'm a little stuffy. It's okay. I have a little bit of a cough. It's okay. A little bit of drainage. Eh, I should be fine. And this was pre-COVID. And, you know, to my knowledge, I didn't spread stuff, but it's just really hard to say. So wondering if some of these parents are going to be able to make those decisions. The second thing is a lack of access to to test. There's a great piece that came through uh, PRIs of the World and then The Atlantic about the failures of the current administration to invest in testing in the same way that they invested in, um, in, uh, in vaccines. And so consequently, it's impossible to find tests. It's taking people days and going um, across county lines to try to find uh, COVID tests. And, you know, now we find out that there will be 500 billion, million, I don't know how many tests there were, uh, that are going to be provided by the Biden administration. But honestly, like, it's too little too late. We need these tests before kids come back into school this week um, so that folks can do it. And um, so that's a problem that we don't have any way of testing. We don't have any mandates that people be tested. You know, I'll tell you, my graduate program requires me to do um, COVID tests every, I want to say 10 days. Um, and I have to do that. And if I don't do that, I lose my campus clearance and have to participate in class virtually. And then coming up in this semester, all of our classes are starting virtual. Um, and we do have to continue the COVID testing. We have to submit evidence of vaccination and we have to submit proof of flu vaccination. And so I just don't understand why, we're not doing this in schools. And I know FERPA is a thing, um, so please don't at me with FERPA, but I do wonder how is it that in the greatest pandemic that we've seen since the 1918 flu pandemic, um, why is it that we can't add COVID shots and COVID boosters 
to what's required for kids to register in school? I don't know. It's just incredibly frustrating. And so all of us who are working at the building level in education, not just teachers, but support staff and custodians and lunch staff and office staff and leadership and anybody who is around kids seven hours a day one way or another in a time that we have this highly transmissible um, variant of the COVID uh, virus, uh, how, how can we feel good about this? So that's really frustrating. So, you know, um, if I was a betting person, I'm pretty sure that there are some places that I could put down a couple of shekels and, uh, you know, pick an over-under for how many uh, shutdowns there will be in the first couple of weeks. Uh, but I'm not that person, and I just hope that it works out. Um, but I also hope that we're raising our voices and making it known because we're not just out here trying to keep ourselves or our colleagues safe. Most of us are out here as well trying to keep our students safe because we know that the majority of us in the city of Denver are teaching students who come from communities of essential workers who are not able to simply take time off when they need it. want to kind of move on to my next topic. Um, so my next topic is I want to talk about graduate school. Pardon the long pause. I have a cat that wants to be a part of this recording. Um, so I'm excited to get back into school. Um, you know, my master's degree was really exhausting a long time ago, and I think what I'm super, what's different about me now is that now that I'm in this doctoral program, is that really my studies have become uh, front and center in my life in terms of my priorities. They are the most important thing that I'm doing. And I'm super excited about that. Um, I'll be taking a policy analysis for education systems class, which I can't wait. Really excited. The professor has a great reputation, and I'm just excited to learn from them. And uh, I will also be taking race and racism in higher education, again, from an incredible uh, professor, scholar, thinker, activist, um, who just comes with high recommendations. So it's super excited. And is super exciting and um, the idea of being back in school is just so amazing to me. I uh, also get to teach Latinx history this coming semester. I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm going to be trying to do something that my friend Diana had suggested to me a long time ago and I think we're actually going to collaborate on some stuff talking about how history belongs to the people. So how do we democratize the historical process? How do we teach our students to find themselves first and to expand their knowledge and understanding of the world outward from themselves? How do we do that? Super excited. And uh, y'all, if you have any ideas, if you have any um, any materials on that, this isn't going to be the same as oral history. It'll be It'll be something different that I promise I will figure out in the next five days. Um, but I'm really excited about that. So um, this one's been a long time coming. Um, really excited. The conversation you're about to hear is with the homegirl, Nat. Um, so Natalie Vardabasso is the producer and host of the EduCrush podcast. Um, she's an assessment lead at Calgary Academy in Canada 
and get super fired up about education, assessment, creativity, and humanity. And the more that I've had a chance to just connect with Natalie, um, the more I find that we're just kindred educational souls, kindred pedagogical souls here. We are both um, really excited about about uh, sources outside of education for our learning. Uh, we're both really excited about just what are some of the boundaries we can start pushing. There was a lot of talk about reimagining education at the head of this pandemic, and it seems like we've all kind of retreated to the status quo, which is to get quote unquote back to normal, which isn't gonna happen. Nobody wants that, even if they say they do. Um, in fact, nobody of consequence wants that. And what I mean is students and teachers, we don't want normal, we can't handle normal, we can't unlearn the thing, the events of the last 21 months, and that's just how it is. So um, I really want to encourage you all to follow Natalie at Natabasso, N-A-T-A-B-A-S-S-O, um, on Twitter and on Instagram, and do listen to the EduCrush podcast, hashtag EduCrush, it is really dope, subscribe, listen, like, get on it. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So Natalie and I chopped it up a while ago. It was a while ago. And so I'm sorry this is coming so late, but I really hope that you enjoy this conversation. Myself, the philosopher, uh, Gerardo Munoz with Natalie Vardabasso. Please enjoy. All right, folks. This is a conversation. I don't know if you've been waiting for this conversation because you probably didn't know it was going to happen. Um, I have been waiting for this conversation. And by waiting, I mean, I've been the one that has uh, put this off a couple of times due to life circumstances. But folks, I just got to I, I got to introduce my guest, one of my favorite disruptors in the universe, Natalie Vardabasso. What is up? What up? I'm so happy to be here and life circumstances happen. Yeah. Uh, it's a, you know, it's great that we're here now. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm happy that you're happy to be here. So there we go. Like we, we can get that going. So for those of you who don't know Natalie, um, tell us about your podcast. Okay. Yeah. Let's start there. I have a podcast uh, launched last September. It's called EduCrush, which is a bit of a play on words. It, the name came about because when I talk about education and there's someone out there like yourself who's doing disruptive, amazing things and Aww. out there sharing their learning and, you know, being teacher of the year and using their platform to advance change, I'd be like, oh, I have such an edgy crush on that person. And I said it all the time. <laughs> and when we were starting to make the podcast, I had some real crappy names. Like, I think one was like, where learning starts. And they're like, is it about <laughs> kindergarten? <laughs> and I was like, uh, so I was, I'm terrible at naming things. And so I was saying this all the time and a friend just called me out and was like, that's it. That's the name. So the podcast features people that are rehumanizing, I like to say education yeah. and disrupting it in all the right ways and have really big ideas that are getting right to the philosophical paradigms that it rests upon. And yeah. it's been a year and it's been the best professional learning decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah, that that's what's so interesting. We so this is this is about to be my this is my fifth year of podcasting uh with two dope teachers and a mic obviously uh habitually disruptive is newer but but it is kind of amazing like how like I'm I'm starting a doctoral program in a couple of weeks and I'm like but I've I've already studied some of the like dopest people out here who are like doing this amazing like revolutionary transformative work and so it is amazing how much you learn from the process 
Um, and also yours, your podcast is like narcotics for nerds. Like it is so <laughs> like great in that way. Like it, it's just it, like, I listen to it and I can't help but be engrossed. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to part with kind of an, uh, kind of an ugly secret. I don't really like okay. education podcasts. Me neither. I, don't I didn't, but I, I didn't think it's find be- a lot. It's, the job is so hard. Like, and it takes so much out of you that I just feel like I, I don't want to hear about school anymore. Like, you know, yeah. my, my spouse, I'll get home and she'll be like, how was your day? I'm like, I'm going to talk about it. It's not that it was good or bad. <laughs> it's just like, it's just a lot. And I don't want, but like your show, I will always listen to um, because it's always, it's always taking that new look on education, which seems to be you know, sort of lacking in the, these COVID endemic times, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's always in a fresh look at things. And, and we've talked a lot about this, like just yeah. about kind of your show and where that's gone. Um, but I kind of, so this is habitually disruptive. I kind of want to know, do you see yourself as a disruptor? I, I've heard you <laughs> invite others who you view as disruptors. Like it's, yeah. it's definitely a tag that you use for others, but you, do you consider yourself that? It's an interesting title to wear because it has kind of a negative connotation. I guess I'd probably feel more drawn to saying I'm a change agent, especially yeah. in the educational space. I don't know if I could say it in all aspects of my life, but I got into education with the mindset of like, I'm only going in here to build a better education so that everybody yeah. can actually learn. Adults too, like we were just talking yeah. about before. I think yeah. that is the one of the most um underrepresented and underserved <laughs> groups of humans <laughs> I really like how you put that like because I had a lot of different ways that I think I was going to describe it but yours is better <laughs> oh thank you adults adults are underserved learners <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> really if we're going to focus on anyone I yeah. mean how many more dry staff meetings do you need to sit through while someone rambles for three hours about how we shouldn't stand and deliver anymore because that's not the best pedagogical approach you're like <laughs> and yet <laughs> And oh, the gaslighting. Yeah. So good. So, so more of a change agent, you would say. What's it? Yeah. Well, so, yeah. yeah. And so, so the connotation of being a disruptor, talk a little bit about that. You know what? I guess like as much as I'd like to say, I'm a change. That's the phrase that I first heard from a professor who was a mentor to me that got me into education and made me believe I wanted to do something in this space. And he used change agent. So that really landed. But then now that I've been in the space, you know, it's probably more accurate to say disruptor because as much as you want to be like, I'm just here to lead positive change. <laughs> if you're really like rattling at the cages of what's happening in schools, yeah. people don't view you as like this cute positive change agent, right? They're like, no, that's oh, right. Yeah. God. Here they yeah, come definitely. again. And they're probably yeah. going to ask questions. Actually, fun story last year. So this is actually the case in point. Actually, I'm a disruptor based on this story alone. My <laughs> colleagues <laughs> in my like learning team, <clears throat> we would have meetings. And in those meetings, I would often feel my emotions get engaged and I would start to ask questions and I would just be asking questions. And I thought I was just, you know, deepening the conversation, but apparently I did it in a way that always had a tone and would just get all of the backs of every leader in the room up. So what they actually did is they made up a code. So someone across the table would look me directly in the eyes after I asked a question and say, Nat, that's a really good point. That's a really interesting point. And that was my cue oh. for like, shut up that you're, oh, wow. you've gone past the point, <laughs> you've gone past the point of like, you know, pushing the conversation to like, this you're, no you're building, <laughs> you're burning bridges, like stop. <laughs> so I guess on oh, that nice story of them alone, to I would look be a disruptor. Out for you. Like nice of them yeah. to look out for you. I, f- I find you can't burn people- out, right? 
Yeah. I Well, and that's the thing is that for me, that's kind of what keeps me engaged is just asking those kinds of questions. And, you know, um, and it is interesting because what you'll get a lot is this response of like, well, what do you think we should do? And mm. I'm like, well, I, I'm not there yet. You know, I was um, kind of a funny story. I was um, talking to to an admin who used to work at my school and uh, he's now interim principal in an elementary school. I'm giving this, uh, this guest speaker presentation to like little kids tomorrow. And um, we were kind of talking and, and he says, well, but what are you going to do about all this? And I was like, um, abolish capitalism, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's what you do. Yeah. And he says, he's like, well, yeah, but what are you going to replace it with? And I was like, look, if my house is on fire, like I'm going to get out of my house. Like, I'm not yeah. going to sit here. I'm not going to go on Zillow and look for a new place. Like, while my <laughs> house burns energy. around me, like, I'm going to get out of my house and figure out where I'm going to go once I have not burned. So I kind yeah. of view it mm-hmm. sort of like this. Totally. And of course, like not, you know, whether we're going to write out individual passes to the bathroom is not the same as my house being on fire, but still it's those things. I want to show you a new toy that I have. This is kind of interesting. You know what this is? That's pretty. It looks so like the one tennis- of those little lightning bugs that's that's jar. exactly what it, it's it's like supposed <laughs> to simulate lightning bugs the 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 tennessee teacher of the year gave them i, I try to set it as a little bit of light um the oh. tennessee teacher of the year gave them out to us at space camp and um and it's like so calming it's great anyway so i've been fiddling with it for about the last five oh, minutes that's awesome. so I thought it would... you do look very glowy it's like a better than light. <laughs> much more inspiring yeah, like I like that, you know, trying. Um, Yeah, yeah, although there's something on my screen, like right on my nose. There we go. Okay. Ah, there you go. So, so this, so Mm -hmm. this kind of disruptive tendency, what's been sort of interesting is watching or listening, I guess, over the course of of the podcast. And it still kind of blows me away that yours has only been around for about a year. This is the first year of it. Uh, You're going into your second season, right? Is that what you're looking at? That blows my mind because it's so good. And Aww. so thoughtful and it's, it's funny, which definitely plays to sort of my interest. Like I definitely try to push important conversations, but I try to be sort of light about it and just kind of like, yeah, but yours we're going to be so fighting funny. For That's what drew me to yours. It was, it was the humor and the realness and the authenticity. It's funny because you're, you're sending me all this love and I'm going to throw some back at you. Like I was so drawn to teachers and a mic because it felt like I was hey. sitting with good friends and like someone's basement just like having a laugh and a conversation about education and disrupting the status quo but in a way that was just chill <laughs> yeah no yeah and and it's and it's funny because like literally that's how the podcast started so yeah. we kind of get yeah. that energy and in the early years we sort of forgot that there was a mic and that we were like publishing this we were just kind of right. like just be talking but it is a lot like kind of sitting on the porch and and just chilling and talking about what's going on mm-hmm. um we're I feel like we've had this conversation before I don't know if we've had it on a show but were you like a disruptive person did you see yourself as a disruptor as a student as a young person like how did you sort of see yourself yeah if I were to really mind down I mean in some ways I feel like I was very compliant to the education system so I've got like that one side of my memories but then I have mm-hmm. this other side where my older brother, he's a year older than me, was born with severe mental and physical disabilities. Okay. And so I went through a lot of like the experiences he would, because my parents wanted us to bond. So I went to like Easter seal camp where 
everyone there, you know, has severe special needs. And so that was just my normal that I went into school with. Yeah. And I have one memory. It was like grade two or three. I know because it was like such a big deal to all the teachers. They're like, what a natural leader. And for me, it was just like <laughs> the thing to do. And it was a, a girl in my class was deaf. And she, I, I don't, I was friends with everybody. So I was like, she's yeah. cool. And she has horses and a farm and we get to climb on hay bales. So I'd hang out yeah. with her sometimes, but I'd hang out with cool kids sometimes. And I remember one day we were like lining up to do something and we had to pick a partner and all of the girls in the grade were like oh like they did not want to be her partner and so uh, I was trying to partner with her and some of the other kids are like no now like don't do that come over here like you're our friend and I was like mm-hmm. no she's my friend too and if <laughs> you can't accept that then you're not my friend <laughs> it was this legendary story yes and my That's parents like the were stuff called the and they're like it was so brave special. I know but at the same time <laughs> it was just like I didn't have the concept of like kids being different like I really didn't get it like Mm. I was like why what's so weird about her to you like I don't get it um so in that way I think just my upbringing made me a little bit more naturally disruptive and I'm very sensitive to power too like I have a lot of memories as a kid Mm. of when teachers came in with really harsh policies yeah (laughs) one of my my favorite stories is grade nine and again I thought I was shy and then I don't (laughs) probably wasn't um it was a computer teacher it was his very first year so like a brand new teacher he was like I gotta be hard I gotta come up with the rules then I gotta like get these kids in line and so he had this feel like a lot of us have been right we've been there and so like looking (laughs) back I'm like oh my gosh he's actually the mayor of my hometown now so it's like this whole how funny (laughs) oh god yeah And uh, so he had this rule about if you lose a piece of paper, you have to pay 10 cents for every paper you lose to cover his printing costs or whatever. And he wanted us to sign a contract. And so I started a petition amongst all the other grade nine students about not signing that contract. And then I encouraged them in class to take his contract and rip it up. And I got sent to the principal's office, who was my dad. There's just layers to this story, (laughs) right? So many layers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I guess in some ways, yeah. What did your dad think? Oh, he said the worst thing, the worst thing a principal (laughs) could say when you go to the office, which is still sitting very calm. He was like, we'll talk about this at home. And I was like, I'm done. You're like, (laughs) I'm uh not doing anything for the next four months. That's, that's not good. That's, that sounds like you need to get a hold of yourself for a few hours and and devise something. So, so then you come from kind of a line of educators, right? Is that, is that the kind of thing that, that fed a disruptive tendency or that sort of, no. (laughs) Opposite, polar opposite. My dad being a principal and quite, and a last name like Bartabasa, you can't really hide in a small town. So I got a lot of pressure going out (laughs) to be like, oh, you're going to be a teacher. He's such a great teacher. I was like, no, I'm not. Why would I want to go back into this mess? Once I'm out, why would I do that? (laughs) Out. (laughs) You cannot pay me enough money to come back to this place. I was so over it. Um, So it took like much later in my life. I was about 25 or 26 when, um, my dad was working on a curriculum board for BC and he met this professor who wanted to do this really innovative teacher education program that looked nothing like most of the big university programs. And hmm. my dad's like, you have to meet my daughter. Like, I just feel like he just had this dream of meeting an educator and he's like, if anyone can get her in, it's him. So that's kind of where the whole disruptor and education thing started. What, what was the program? I'm, now I want to know. What was the program? Uh, I have to talk this on my podcast it's one of the it's the very last episode of last season 27 but it was at ubc okanagan and it was a middle school program so it was within the bigger teacher education program he kind of pulled out about 20 of us and his 
first of all, the summer institute, he collapsed all the courses. He just told the other professors, like, let me do this. I promise it'll work. So we had no <laughs> courses. We didn't have like, oh, we're taking this course about diversity and this course about literacy. Yeah. Like they were just collapsed and we were doing these week long themes basically. And we'd have to do case studies and we were in different mixed groups of people. And there was tons of external teachers and experts from the community. Hmm. It was just like this totally integrated experience. And then once we oh, split wow. off, um, we never had class at university. Every single one of our classes was at a classroom somewhere in the Okanagan. So we get a message on Sunday being like, okay, drive to Kelowna. We're going to Rutland middle, middle school. And you guys are going to be oh, running wow. a week long, a week long project on water. The teachers would so be working directly with students. And yeah. this was something. Yeah. Was, wow. So like my, I bombed so hard in front of students, like six months before my <laughs> practicum. Wow. It was a dream. Yeah. No, so that's time great. I was my practicum, yeah. my yep. st- practicum advisor like actually took a vacation she's like oh you're good I just taught 100 percent and <laughs> she left she's like she's got this this is out wow yeah. but that kind of, it, it sounds authentic it sounds like it got you really kind of yeah um you know wow what an interesting thing and so then you were in the classroom for how long uh like as a teacher yeah like as a classroom teacher sorry yeah um for <laughs> like six and a half years and now I've been out for just over two wow Cool. Yeah. And then what yeah. did you teach? I feel like we've talked about this before, but I don't remember things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the humanities side, like yourself. So yeah. I started in high school teaching mostly English. Okay. And then I've worked my way down to the middle school where I think I've always been meant to be. So grade seven, eight teaching social studies, yeah. English language arts, and like a ton of other things. I was always making up courses. <laughs> And they would yeah. just let me teach them. So I taught a course once on Michael Jackson. That was really fascinating. <laughs> it's a whole we, uh, course? We, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's used, amazing. <laughs> for a term, we used dance to explore just like aspects of society and culture through yeah. Michael Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. So it's dope. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyone who listens to your show knows that there, there are always these really important questions being asked that don't necessarily have answers to them. So, some do. Um, one of the yeah. ones that really stuck with me was the one that kind of got me on, on the bandwagon for ungrading, you know, where yeah. sort of talking about, and specifically it was the feedback episode where mm-hmm. you talk about mm-hmm. how like there had been these three studies of, you know, what's the ideal marriage of feedback and grades. And it turned out that the best was actually feedback with no grade, um, yeah. that that was where the students performed the best. Um, the, so the, the show is always really fascinating. Um, so what is it that kind of drives you in that work? Like, what do you find mm-hmm. yourself disrupting? What does EduCrush do mm-hmm. um, in terms of your your lens on education that maybe is kind of disrupting the status quo and kind of going after some of this, mm. like some of this conven- conventional wisdom that we've all just sort of replicated over the years. Yeah. What, what is it that the show does? Mm. We've chatted about your work in that a little bit and it wasn't actually like very intentional when I started the show, but I'm realizing mm-hmm. that one of the best ways to disrupt education is to get outside of education <laughs> mm. Yeah, <laughs> because there, there are so many ways that we can tweak all the little, you know, nodes of education like assessment yep. and you know instructional strategies and literacy and courses yep. and all of that but it's the whole system itself that just needs like a complete new look and yeah. i found that talking to people in business or commerce like entrepreneurs they have such fascinating ideas and they yeah. use slightly different language but they're actually talking about the exact problems we're trying to solve 
right. and then they actually have a way of doing that because they're not held back by all of the bureaucratic garbage that we have to deal with in a school yeah. where we have people's children all day, every day. So that's yeah. when I think something I'm trying to disrupt is helping people to see that we're all trying to get to the same place, which yep. is helping people to be like self-actualized and learning and empowered and feeling like they're in creative control of their life. Yeah. Um, and trying to go outside of education to do that. Yeah. I, you know, th- th- when we first had this conversation about that, about drawing from other sources outside of education mm-hmm. to approach the work of teaching and learning, um, that was one of the most affirming like things, conversations that I've been in. Cause I thought it was just me and, um, mm-hmm. That and and you know I I had started feeding myself these myself this myself <laughs> myself <Yeah. laughs> these sort of um, these toxic messages where it was like well nobody else does this like nobody else looks outside like you just yeah. don't know education well enough and that's why you're not looking into an education background for this stuff so when we had that conversation that was I think that was like the first moment I'm like nah we we got to do this show together because yeah. I, I feel like that would like you were really speaking my language in that um what's an example of a place where you've been able to gain insight on education as a field from a non-education field Mm. yeah human resources i guess it was this the episode that you said you love too and i wish more people were drawn to it it was rodney evans she's a partner with a company called the ready which i don't know they'd probably cringe if i tried to label them and put them in a box because that like they are so disruptive by nature they wouldn't say the human resources it it runs counter to like everything that they do to have like yeah (laughs) like they call themselves like an organizational um change partner basically Mm -hmm. so they disrupt the all of the systems and structures of any organization yeah. And as I started to, I'm obsessed with their podcast. It's called Brave New Work, her and her yep. partner, Aaron Dignan. And it's like, it just blew my mind with all of the things that we just take for granted in schools that potentially could be completely disrupted, like decision-making. Yeah. That is yeah. something we just, we just talked about that, right? Like, oh, if I have to take a sick day, I need to make sure it's five days in advance. And it's like, we yeah. don't actually have the capacity to make a lot of decisions and it just goes all the way up the chain. And then that's replicated for kids in the classroom. Yep. And there are very simple protocols just like a cooperative structure, like an AB partner talk. They're like simple protocols that could be thrown into a place in a school that turn it from a very top-down controlled traffic intersection to like a roundabout where people are actually truly adaptive and agile and, you know, taking the next step in their learning and the ecosystem is emerging just as in a very human and adaptive way. Yeah. I think that's got me really fired up right now. This idea of adaptive leadership, I think, is really important. And, you know, I've, I, I hear a lot of people talking about it, but then the more they talk about it, I realize they don't really know what it is. Um, other than like some words that sound really good together and make them sound like edgy and progressive. Um, mm-hmm. So this, this was the same conversation where um, you and Rodney talked about even overthinking, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, talk about even over and why that's disruptive. Oh, gosh, because we have <laughs> like too many priorities any given year yep. in education. Um, and if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. So Period. that is the first thing that they wanted to, which I will is, add, that is something teachers have been saying forever, right? like classroom <laughs> teachers have been saying that forever. And it's like, Ugh. um, but I get, but I guess a lot of these leaders aren't really listening to consultants anymore than they ever listen to teachers. So, oh, exactly. Yeah. So like even overthinking. Okay. So even over how it works is 
you bring a group of people together, all of this stuff always has to happen through dialogue, like great assessment practice too. And you would say, okay, we've got assessment and we have social emotional learning. Not that I can say those two totally separate things, but whatever. And we both, we want them both to be priorities this year. They're both very important. We hear that there's this camp that wants SEL and there's this camp that wants assessment. Traditional school would say like, Oh, let's just do both. And you can lead that and you can lead that. That's right. We'll we'll have a committee. And then we'll just, then we'll, we'll flood teachers calendars with tons of extra sessions that these two people are competing for yes. their time and no one will learn anything because they're so overwhelmed. And right. instead but you go, we can say okay, that we did it. <laughs> but we can check check. We'll put it on someone's report. It'll go up the chain yep. to someone and someone will get a raise. I don't know how that works. <laughs> and so instead you say, okay, we're gonna prioritize something. And so the even over is a way of saying we're gonna prioritize assessment even over social emotional learning because the even over implies yes, they're both important, but we have to prioritize because the results that they've seen again and again in their company is that if you choose one thing, like if you say, okay, let's focus on assessment, even over social emotional learning, and that's what you put all of your energy and time into, you actually get the social emotional learning outcomes. Like yeah. if you're focusing uh, on assessment yeah. and it's about, you know, going gradeless and doing more meaningful feedback, that's gonna impact the emotional experience of the students. Yeah. But when you try to do both, then you just, it becomes overwhelming and people don't have that depth and they're spread too thin and then you get neither. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing. And I, and I feel like I've got members of my leadership team starting to use uh, the terminology. It'll be interesting to mm-hmm. see what happens when you start digging into what it actually means. Like, and a, and a great like non-example of what you're talking about is literally mm-hmm. what my district decided to do before the school year started. So we go to leadership week. I don't know if I told yeah. you this. Um, no, we, no, no, we go no. to leadership week and it's the, it's man, it's, it's, it's such it's such an event and it's like five days long and leadership um, week. I feel like there's so much to unpack just on the name leadership week. <sighs> it really is. You know, and, <laughs> and a lot of times, like, I remember like, I, this is my, so I was, a I was a team lead from 2014 to 2017. Um, and so that was the first time that I had been a teacher leader. And then I left the role for a while. And then I, then I came back and it's just so funny because like, leadership we get is so contentious that they disable the chat and this is like building <laughs> leaders and like principals mm-hmm. and admins and directors and so it's it's just a really it's just a really interesting thing all kinds of tension all kinds of like frustration and um so they they decided to roll out this new thing that they're calling t-seal right mm-hmm. um <laughs> i'm assuming it's an acronym <laughs> <laughs> yes, it yeah, is. Yeah. And I didn't know what it was. That's the other thing is a lot of these districts are changing their their terminology so often that you don't know what anything is, but you feel like you're supposed to uh, because everyone else is acting like they know what it is, but they don't either. So TCL stands for Transformative Social Emotional Academic Learning. Mm, that's very clear. It, it really is. <laughs> and it, be, because... And the way they walked us through it was saying, well, we wanted to do SEL, but, you know, we have learning loss. And so we're oh, going to no. also have an academic aspect to this. So it's going to be SEAL, but we really want it to be transformative. I'm like, we we did not do anything just now. Like <laughs> somebody who spent all this time on these slides and it yeah. led to nothing, you know, and and it is one of those things that, you know, when you decide to focus on the right thing and dig deep in, deeply into it, 
you know, that's kind of the secret is you end up addressing a lot of other needs as a matter of Mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we know that to be true with our kids too. Like how many times have we been in the, and we've talked about this, we don't translate things from the classroom back to the adult cultures. Like in the classroom, we know that if we have a jam packed curriculum and you're like, okay, I want them to, what, what do I want them to transfer to next year? What do I want them to deeply understand? And as teachers, we tend to zoom out and go, okay, well, what's the big concept here? What right. concept am I focusing on? Like you figure you've got to narrow it down to the thing that allows for depth. Cause if yeah. we just keep going for breadth and that's what everyone's going for, then we get a whole lot of nothing. Cause then a lot yeah. of it just gets lost and doesn't transfer. Yeah. And, and these are things that we keep hearing from across the U S um, you know, which is the context that I'm coming out of where there's the rhetoric says we want to go for depth, but the practice is something called unit internalization, which means that you stay on pace, like the pacing guide dictates mm. where you are from day to day, which is yeah. the antithesis of yeah. depth, the yeah. antithesis of even over. And it's, yeah. and it's just really interesting. So it does beg these, these questions of why are we just saying that we're doing things that we're not, and we don't believe <sighs> in them. So why do people stick with the status quo? That wasn't a question I planned to ask, but, but I kind of, I'm curious as to your take on that. Cause it sounds like you run into a lot of folks who kind of stuck in their ways, kind of don't want to change necessarily. Oof. It was actually a line that, uh, I feel like it's an internalization of, we were just talking about capitalism. So let's go there yeah, in this system, there. in this, if you're going to disrupt the status quo, you have to be someone who embraces creativity in your own life because mm-hmm. change is an act of creation. Yeah. Like you don't just write something, you become a writer, like you change you. Yeah. And in this system, we weren't meant to create, we were meant to comply. So that is so deeply ingrained Man. in people. It's like, you're Man. just meant to go through and serve the privileged few who the society was built to serve. And the rest of us are just, it's so ingrained like it's in our soil it's in our blood I think that's where it really comes from people don't at the core of it trust themselves it's just so sad because like when oppression happens and I mean in a capitalist system we're all oppressed in a lot of ways yeah yeah you don't believe in yourself because you've internalized that it's someone else's job to do the thinking and to do the creating and to build the system that you just work in right yeah and and this idea that you know to take it even further, like the alienation of the human from their work, um, mm. this was this was definitely what what Marx wrote about was that you know as mm. we industrialize and as we specialize, what's what happens is that the laborer no longer has a relationship of self to their labor and and they they're just yeah. selling it and um, man that that statement mm. we don't create we comply um you had a tweet kind of about that today didn't you i feel like you tweeted something <laughs> probably about that i was i've actually been cuz like, nothing's cooler than asking people all day, to like so. <laughs> explain their tweets like <laughs> it's yeah. like that's not why <laughs> i tweet <laughs> it was one no, about like do you want me to pull it up i can pull it up sure it up. i don't remember what uh, let's see this is going to be super exciting um listening as I <laughs> as I search for a tweet <laughs> um no but one of the things that that came up that's come up for me as as we have this kind of race back to quote-unquote normalcy is that capitalism doesn't really know how to stop right like that's mm-hmm. not what it does um and and I think that is probably the most insidious thing about trying to get mm-hmm. back into this instance 
this this patriarchal industrial capitalist model of education is that there, there isn't it, it it doesn't self-correct like it Mm-mm. just becomes a bigger faster more overwhelming version of itself you know yeah um, it evolves all right so this was from seven hours ago uh let's debunk <laughs> these myths <laughs> just because it says yeah mm-hmm. i have it right there um, oh yeah Let's debunk these myths surrounding creativity. So the so myth number one, it's innate. You're either born with it or not. Myth number two, it belongs to the arts. Myth, myth number three, it happens through isolation. Myth number four, it's a frivolous pastime that doesn't contribute to the economy. And myth number five, it's easy. Mm-hmm. So that is great stuff. Um, <laughs> talk about that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was, I've actually been like, I'm surprised my cat's not like screaming at the door still. I've been in here working for like hours because I okay. season two launches tomorrow and I hadn't actually Ooh. written or recorded the podcast yet. So that's what I've been yeah. doing all day. I was like, oh, I'd like to start it on a solo note, just to like set the tone and kind of yeah. give me a lens for the season. So I called the episode Liberating Creativity. And that's where mm. that came from is I start by debunking the myths and then I really get into the liberation piece, which is actually where that line comes from. We weren't meant to create you we were meant to yeah. comply because I'd written it today. So yeah, it's there. Hold that one. It's um, there. But truly are, are not only the way the, the internalized oppression shows up with creativity, it actually comes from, you're a reader like me, read across domains. There's a man by yeah. the name of Stephen, Stephen Pressfield. Mm. Book right here. He's written a bunch of books. Um, his most famous one is called The War of Art. And the other one, Do the Work. I was recommended it by a bunch of people that were hearing me ask really complex questions about creativity and why we don't create and why is creativity looked down upon and like you need to read Stephen Pressfield. So he talks about it as the resistance is what he calls it. They're those dream blocking barriers that all of us have to actually creating. And there's internal and there's external. So the internal is that voice in our head. That's like, it's all been done before. Why make a podcast? Like cult of pedagogy is killing it. Don't bother. You won't produce anything of value. Sure. And then from the external world, like people like status quo, it's comfortable. So when you start yeah. creating, you start shifting and your friends and family are actually some of the biggest resistance to the status quo because they don't want you to do something differently because you're used to you being a certain way. And if you get yeah. really fired up about a project, then it's just that your priorities are shifting and your time and attention is shifting and they're going to put subtle pressure on you to, to not Wow. Um, so that's one piece of the resistance is working through that. And then I kind of zoomed out as I was writing. It was like, oh, there's this society piece though, because yeah. if everybody was creating, it would literally disrupt the entire system. And then I didn't talk yeah. about this in the podcast and I'm glad we can talk about it now. There's such fascinating stuff coming out in the last year and a bit around how the creator economy is just literally dismantling everything oh, because wow. so many people are creating because of these social media platforms Yep. Um, that now it is such a viable career to be an independent entity who creates and crowdsources your income and the economy because of all the blockchain stuff and all of the things going on with economics yeah. um, and these things called NFTs or non-fungible yep. tokens. I'm getting so nerdy right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> this isn't the first conversation I've had about these, <laughs> okay. so this is good. It's, I feel it's, like this is affirming. <laughs> yeah, it be, though, it, because of that, banks and commerce and all these things that were like controlling our society are starting to lose their hold. And people are realizing, like, I mean, that GameStop thing that happened when people oh, yeah. realized it's like, oh, you can literally do this and topple something and make it like, we can game this system yeah. and then build it into something that works for us. I think that's happening yeah. with creativity right now is 
wow. people realize that you can create and that you can create your own like stability, your own career yeah. without needing a boss. Like yeah. what a crazy idea. Right? Yeah. Well, and I think that, like the growing them and, and I think that particularly millennials get criticized really harshly for this kind of thing, because mm -hmm. we do have this generation of creators to your point who are kind of saying, yeah, I don't just want to accept that as my lot in life. Like, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, work my way up, you know, I, you mm -hmm. know, I don't want that. I don't want to pay my dues. Like, yeah. and especially now where you, where you look at that there, there are no entry-level positions in any industry anymore. Like you, you have to jump in and do it and those opportunities aren't there. And I, I think that's such an interesting mm -hmm. thing. Um, just kind of hearing you talk a little bit about it and nerd out a little bit, is this, is this kind of what's giving you joy in your work these days or is it, is it other it's things as well? Sparking, it's what's sparking my curiosity. Mm -hmm. I think this idea that we can all become independent creators and what might that do for the education system if yeah. you know suddenly we're all truly independent contractors like what would that look like yeah um because it's starting to happen whether we like it or not like Khan Academy came along and yep. completely disrupted the game using videos and yep. then during COVID we had all of I don't know about in the states but here in Alberta we had tons of teachers or even parents that went rogue and were like I'm gonna do a program out of my house yeah and I'm only gonna take six students and this is what it's gonna look like and I mean of course yeah. then that comes back to like money and I think that can make education a little bit messy but right begs the question what if teachers had control I mean the, the teachers were at, teachers during that time were asking some really important questions like okay so if I have these eight families who are going to pool their mm -hmm. resources, give me a salary, give me benefits, give me mm -hmm. what I feel like I have to beg for in this system. Like, why would I stay in this system? And, and to your point that, mm -hmm. you know, there's there are equity questions, there are social stratification questions when it comes to these micro schools and, and these programs. Yeah. But I think that's kind of the hallmark of the, the disruptor. The disruptor is like, well, we can't shy away from the question, though. Like yeah. there, there may be details to be worked out. There may be th mm -hmm. really difficult obstacles. And you may just say, nah, actually this does more harm than good, but mm -hmm. you don't do any service to yourself or anyone else if you don't at least ask the question. And I think that's exactly. what I appreciate about your work is that you ask the questions, you know? Absolutely. And run out of the burning building. Yeah. I love that. That's analogy. right. And run, it, run out Never of the burning building, it. asking questions the whole way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're going to take a really quick break um keep the lights on do all that kind of stuff when we come back we're going to talk about looking to the future um and then we will talk about natalie's top five um stay with us on habitually disruptive how do you know that your organization has created a culture of belonging where everyone thrives are there areas in your programming that don't align with the values and mission of your organization, but you are not sure what to do about it? If the answer is yes to either of these questions, your organization needs a comprehensive equity audit. For more information on how an equity audit can shift your organization's culture, contact the team at Lions Educational Consulting, lionseducationalconsulting.com. That's Lions, L-Y-O-N-S, educationalconsulting.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Gerardo Munoz. This is Habitually Disruptive, and we are talking 
with Edu Crush's Natalie Vardabasso. Um, when we took our break, we were talking a little bit about what's giving joy. And I think that's one of the one of the ideas from Antonio Gramsci that I try to keep in my head is like, you know, the ideal way to live life is to have pessim of the, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. So I want to get to your optimism of will. What is it do you think that we're like, that, that we're really close to achieving? Is there anything that we're really close to mm -hmm. achieving as we, as we work towards educational justice and, you know, even abolitionist practice in education? Yeah, well, I guess we haven't really talked about it yet, but outside of the podcast, my actual nine to five day-to-day -day job there you go. is as an assessment lead for a K-12 special education school. And I obviously am very, very deep in trying to figure out what are the things yeah. that we can and should change around assessment. And there's a lot you can do like in the actual school right now. But I think if I were to think like around the corner, bigger vision, I feel like the writing's on the wall that portfolios are coming, whether we like it or not. Yes. I really, really <laughs> think that it's happening at the university level. There's so many industries that are using portfolios as their means of hiring that so talk it's a really bit about hard to portfolios because I, the portfolio yeah. assessment system isn't something that's new like we have one in our yeah. school but it's um it's a little bit of a franken portfolio like uh -huh. it's, yeah it's yeah. sort of stitched together it's like okay this is our thing but okay the district tells us we have to have this and then oh we have to have like these other things and so we attach a bunch of things to uh, it um what's the portfolio I, system that you see materializing that could absolutely be a game changer well, for me, it has to completely replace the grading system, like just gone. I guess that's really the thing that if I'm talking about what's going to change everything is that anything that resembles a grade is just removed from the educational equation. Um, yeah. And it's all about just this holistic representation of each kid as a unique entity and it's not humanizing on. Yeah, it's humanizing, if you will. I think that's <laughs> what the real thing is that I feel like there is just a there is a groundswell right now around that. Yeah. Like people are really fired up about that topic. And so I'm yeah. really curious to see where that goes. And I'm, I'm thinking like back to what we were talking about earlier, we need to be better at connecting with business and other industries out in society to get them on board and advocate for this. Because I think yeah. they would agree that they don't, you know, a resume isn't enough. A grade point average isn't enough. They don't know right. what kind of person they're getting. And we yeah. all want to do a better job at understanding who these people are. Yeah. That, you know, you might be working with. So that should, if you're going to use the argument that, you know, school prepares kids for life and work, that right. that's something we should honor in the educational yeah. space as well. That reminds me yeah. of, I was complaining in class when I was in like 10th grade, um, which I know is shocking. And, mm -hmm. um, and I remember being lectured by this teacher that if I didn't do what I was supposed to do, like my homework and all this other kind of stuff, that I wasn't going to be able to contribute to the global economy. And I was like, I, why would I want to contribute? That sounds like, mm -hmm. that sounds awful. <laughs> like, that's not really my dream in life. And so one question I do have, and you talked a little bit about, um, about industry and kind of the business world and the lessons that often the business world has to teach us, how do we ensure that the business world is acting in good faith when it comes to mm. this type of stuff? So I think about ways in which um, ETS, right? Educational testing systems, college board, these are um, for-profit businesses masquerading as nonprofits. Yeah. And right. 
they have lobbyists and they are influencing policy that benefits them. So how do we ensure that, or how do we know whether some of these organizations are act, actually acting yeah. in good faith? Maybe we don't. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Yeah, that's okay, cool. <laughs> that's like the Neil deGrasse Tyson <laughs> you know, response. It's like, oh, that's easy. We don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, that's, as soon as you mix any kind of finances, money, it just, yeah, I think it really everything. muddies the conversation educationally. So, yeah. yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think, I think though, that looking at, you know, the, that, that conversation with Rodney that you had just kind of continues to echo because this is a person mm-hmm. that works in the business world and that consults with, you know, with corporate yeah. entities, but yeah. clearly somebody operating in good faith and looking you know, to bring a humanizing perspective yeah. to that world. Yeah. It's all about intention. Right. And you don't yeah. really get a feeling of that until you talk to someone and try to figure out what their actual outcome they're going after is. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear the drag racers out about a quarter of a mile <laughs> away? Can, can you hear them? Like just daily. I thought I heard like a little rumbling in the background. No, that's what but... that was. Yeah. We, we oh. have, um, we have, you know, those weird roads that can't decide whether they're boulevards or highways. And so uh, like, and so people just like fly down there and every now and then we'll hear things. Uh, fun, fun fact, it's not that fun. When we first moved in the first night, we were just kind of getting ready for bed. We, we had just like hauled in, in a bunch of boxes. I come up the stairs, look out the window and there's a car flipped over like next to one oh, of the God. traffic lights. It was the most ominous thing yeah. ever. There was like nobody around it. It was just Ugh. sitting there and I'm like, <laughs> This is bizarre. Uh, speaking of disruption, I am currently disrupting my own podcast, so we can get back kind of into this. <laughs> so no, I mean, I really apocalyptic. Yeah, there we go. But I really, I mean, that that is such an amazing thing, and and I think, um, I, I think I tweeted a while back about you know sort of this chain of Twitter events that I had that have caused me to really kind of get on board with ungrading and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the first the first conversation was with was like well, with you and your podcast, you weren't actually talking to me, your podcast was talking to me. And, (laughs) you know, that kind of grading and assessment piece. And then my friend Zainab made this funny, like comment about how like, ha ha, who even grades anymore? And so (laughs) got into that. (laughs) And then uh, Jonna Brown from the uh, Pullman district in in, uh, Washington state has like turned me on to this incredible thing. So that groundswell you're talking about is Mm -hmm. um, palpable. Like it's it's obvious and it seems like, it's coming and um and that's super exciting like humanizing things yeah know? and Again, a- i don't it's i don't think it'll be in our lifetime but i definitely yeah. think we're going to see these little tweaks until the frustration and the tension of like we okay we went standards based but did we really actually change anything we took the 100 point scale and we reduced it down to four levels of right. a proficiency scale absolutely an improvement yeah. It still kind of feels but it becomes like really circular kids. because you're like, well, so what does this mean on a standards-based rubric? Well, it's like a B plus. Okay. Exactly. Cool. And then so suddenly you get you yourself being like, oh, there play. it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, kids it do it too. Really Parents circular. do it too. They immediately yeah. are like, oh, it's a two. It's like a C. You're like, well. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's no. not, no, that's the, but I mean, I think it goes to show that, um, you know, the, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's mm. house. Right. And so, that's it. you know, shout out Audrey Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's such an important thing to think about. I'm surprised to hear you say that you don't think we will, we'll see that in our lifetime, because as we look at universities that are starting to go test optional and yeah. they're starting to 
embrace a more holistic view of their students, but you still think that we're kind of a long way away from that as a system. I, the fact that there's still so many schools that are struggling to embrace like outcomes-based or standards-based grading for me yeah. tells me that we might be a part of our little echo chamber on Twitter that is all very yeah, disruptive. Yeah, I worry about that And because I, I do like, like this. my echo chamber, honestly. Me too, I love it. It's, it's great amazing. there. We're yeah. definitely like, you really feel like the world <laughs> is shifting. And then I go out to do my work and I'm like, so we're moving outcomes-based and people are like, what? What? Like Hold we're on. facing the assessment Wait. on learning? Wait. That's insane. Like that is one of the weirdest things to me in school. The fact that like you have to convince people that what we're assessing in school is learning and not tasks. Like right. it feels like you're going crazy when you're trying to continue that conversation. And that's, you know, my context is just one, but there's so many schools yeah. and districts all over North America that are nowhere near that yet. I, so I find the same with anti-racist education that, you know, again, we talk, we talk about who we keep in our circles and who we interact with. And everyone I interact with is like down, like, <laughs> yeah. and then you go into, to your point, district PDs, staff meetings, and you're like, wait, you're not on Twitter, are you? <laughs> like, yeah. You're, <laughs> you're not hearing aren't. these conversations. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess that's true. Um, yeah. But, but it is interesting because, you know, you kind of create this world and you realize outside of that, that virtual world, not to say that it's the virtual world is invalid. Like I think that, you know, I can unironically say that some of the best professional connections I've made, like in the last five years or so are through social media, mm -hmm. um, not so much through professional development or all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so it is kind of interesting. Standards are interesting to me because I feel like with standards, you're still kind of beholden to what somebody decided was important. And it was like yeah. this big aha moment for me. I think that's such an overused phrase. But when I was mm -hmm. in grad school the first time and uh, the professor was like, well, yeah, standards based is just one approach. And I'm like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, wait, because they talk about it like it's the only approach. And then you start sort of pushing those boundaries and start thinking yeah. about that. But but a body of evidence is really an interesting thing to consider. Like here, mm -hmm. here are the things that we said we were going to try to learn. And did we make progress towards them? Um mm -hmm. You nailed it when you said there's still yeah. someone dictating that like if we were thinking long term like for sure not in our lifetime but hopefully at some point it would be just the getting rid of curriculums altogether yeah. like curriculum would be co-created by the humans in that space like there's have yeah. you ever heard of the school um high tech high down in san diego i have i don't know anything about it we have a high tech oh, out man. here but i don't think it's the same <laughs> yeah i don't know if it is or not but uh it's, I had the chance to go down there a couple of years back and go to their big deeper learning conference and then start to learn more about the school as kind of a byproduct of that. And yeah. they don't have a curriculum. Like, I don't know what they, I am dying to talk to someone who was the architect and be like, how, like the teachers are empowered. They bring them in based on just people being really passionate and wow. wise in their area of passion and they are free to design whatever they want to wow. design and everything is authentic demonstrations of learning. And yeah. at the end of every quarter or semester, I'm not sure how they do it. They have the whole community come in to see these like epic demonstrations of learning. There's wow. actually a documentary about it. It's called most likely to succeed. Oh, um, got it. It's uh, fascinating. Notes. Like hearing that it can just, it can happen. It can just be done. And it's cool. Cause the documentary follows a couple kids going through it. 
and in different classes. And you see at the beginning of the term, like these teachers coming together, like one guy's in physics and the other's in history. And they just come together and they're like, I have an idea. And he's like, yeah, let's go, let's spitball. And they're just like building this thing. And they're like, okay, we wanna like, we're really fired up right now about how civilizations rise and fall. Like it seems very timely and very relevant. And he's like, yes, we can work with this. We can have them build a machine where they have to represent their theory based on, like they just build this project basically. And like, that's how it should be. Yeah. Like it truly should be like that. And all of the assessments dialogic. So they're sitting with kids, they're talking to kids, they're coaching the parents come yeah. in at one point near the end and the parents are watching while the community questions the student as if, like, what did you learn? Like, how do you know you learned it? Wow. Like powerful, but like, it's wow. good. It's a really balanced documentary where it shows the parents that have their kids there being like, I hope this means they'll get into university and they'll do well in standardized tests. Like they're like, I don't know, but she's really happy and really confident, (laughs) which is good. Right. And they're like questioning the cameraman. Like, well, that's the thing that that's the thing is that as parents, you know, and now that I have a 16 year old junior in high school, um, you know, you, you want them to be set up for success, but you also want them to be happy. And it's really it can be really tough to to look at what what's happening and and accept that this is actually going to be good good for my kid. Um, yeah. it, it makes me think of a, a of a conversation I had with Annie Fetter where she she's saying that you know she was talking about math homework and she said you know the thing about math homework is we haven't changed the way we give math homework in two generations and the reason we mm-hmm. keep giving it the same way we always did is like oftentimes well, I had to do it. So you yeah, have to do it. And exactly. I was miserable. So you better be miserable. And yeah. why do we think in those ways? Right? Um, you know. know, these kind of complexes that we have that we're trying to like overcome. But what you describe with high tech kind of makes me think of the big picture schools, the the, oh, e- the yeah. expeditionary learning schools. Mm-hmm. And I think the I think the ch- and if there are any big picture EL folks who are listening and can um, correct me or educate me on this, <laughs> my what I always sort of read to be the the failings of some of those programs was their inability to a, to address systemic oppression. So yeah. um, these were great programs, but they couldn't solve poverty. They couldn't solve these other things. Mm-hmm. And then Jeffrey Canada comes along and says, we don't have to solve poverty. Um, <laughs> and so hmm. that makes an interesting argument. But, but it does yeah. sound like an idea that's been around for a while, but just in terms of like I have to see this documentary, but it sounds like this Mm -hmm. is actually democratizing the educational process that every member of the community is, it is expected to become the best versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. It seems like that from the documentary. I'm sure like, even when I was down there, I remember I was walking to one session and this brand new teacher had just started there. And I was like, so be honest, like, <laughs> is it ever actually that good? Ever the you know, I was like, is it really like, is it really almost, you know, fired up to me? And he's like, so far, so good. I don't know. Maybe yeah. there's a lot of behavior issues. And I'm like, oh, classic first year teacher. <laughs> like, yeah, right, right. He's just worried, right. worried about the behavior. About. I'm like, yep. okay. But yep. I am curious though, like, yeah, are they actually, I think I did hear one, because I was asking this question a lot down there because there was so much hype. And I think one person gave me the critique of, well, they're known for not being like, to your point as, progressive with serving Mm. diverse needs right like if you were coming in as a student with a significant learning difference um they wouldn't you know but I'm like well it sounds like the way they're designing though is so inclusive but at the same time I wouldn't know until I was actually in there seeing what's happening and my background isn't in special education and so special educators do not come for me but what (laughs) I would suggest is that 
the reason that we have a designation of special education is precisely because the system was created to be one size fits all. And it just very, very obviously doesn't fit everyone. So maybe ostensibly in a, in a program like this, there isn't a need for, you know, for academic sort of differentiation because the program is differentiated already. Mm. Maybe that's naive to say, right? Maybe, but um, But there's this one story from the documentary that like plagued me for a long time after where mm. there's this one boy in that big uh, civilizations project and they're all doing the same project. So right away I'm like, okay, I get it. There is value in the shared experience and it's totally disrupting what is a demonstration of learning. But this boy I'm watching and I'm like, he's clearly struggling with some like attention deficit challenges Mm. and they, they kind of leave him on his own and they're like, oh, that's just him. And the day comes and he's mm. nothing to show. Like he didn't finish his project and they just leave right. his blank space, like turning on this big wheel, like clearly oh, incomplete. <laughs> and then, you know, kind of public shame him. And then at the end he keeps working on it and they're like, see, he eventually got there. And I'm like, <laughs> like as a special educator, <laughs> the question popped into my mind, like, could there not have been some design built yeah. in to support this kid with his time. Maybe even intervention and, where we're kind of like, we know this might actually be a little bit too wide open for this learner. But then on the flip side though, I'm like, you know, it's authentic failure. And maybe that is like a significant learning experience for him. Mm-hmm. And you, you almost want to see that kid a year or two later, right? Like yeah. it'd be cool if that documentary came back and showed a bit more of a longer view on some of these students who are in junior high at the time. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Uh, well, so our time is uh, running up, but, but I do have one very important question um, that mm. I want to pose to you. Hopefully right. you've had enough time. You've had a matter of <laughs> minutes to think about it <laughs> and you've oh, been man. talking about other things. So no, this is, this is a tough one. Um, oh, yes. there was one more story that I wanted to share before. So I'll buy you a little bit of time with this. Okay. So okay. Um, in terms of, of learning from other fields um, and people laugh at me when I say this stuff, but um but one of my biggest like sources of like, I guess like professional mentorship has mm-hmm. actually been watching the Denver Nuggets basketball team. <laughs> like what, see, people always laugh. No, um, I get it. I love it. But it's so interesting because it's like, you know, in sports, we have this expression, the ball don't lie, you know? And yeah. so it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you're doing things the way you're supposed to be doing them, then you're going to score points and you'll probably get some results and that kind of thing. And um, the Nuggets mm-hmm. had this run where everybody got hurt, like everybody got hurt. And, um, and yet, you know, they lose their second best player to an ACL injury. And then, but then they go on this like 14 and two run where they just can't be beat. And so they asked the coach, Michael Malone, they said, so how is it that you lose your second best player and everybody's just ready to play? Is it just because they're NBA players and they're just pros and everyone's good and all that kind of thing? He says, no, I've been in these situations where it's um, where where everyone is a pro and they don't act like it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I've been in these situations. And he said, but what I've learned is that the greatest gift you can give a young athlete is confidence. Mm hmm. And so at a time when the most recent NBA season was, was beginning its run up um, and all these teams were scrambling to get it together, get training camp done, get ready for the season. And they're like, we don't have time for any of the community building, any of the team bonding, any of the things we usually do. We just got to get right into basketball. The Nuggets actually said, no, actually, this is why we have to do the community stuff. This is why we have to do the bonding and the mentorship. Mm-hmm. And they ended up 
having a really successful season. And so, you know, to your point, it makes me think of that. It's like, yeah. So how is it that I, as a practitioner, am building confidence in my students? Because that is the greatest gift. Um, So, yeah. So, you know, you you get it from these awesome consultants. I get it from the NBA. um, But it's, it's such a disruption that they model um, in an right. area that doesn't look like it can be disrupted, you know. Isn't it? Do you find it almost kind of affirming when you hear a story from a different field that yeah. just makes total sense in the classroom? It's almost like these moments of realizing that we're literally all in the same system, struggling with the same human things. Yeah. And when we realize that, it makes you feel a little less like we're these educators trying to save the world alone in our room with our thirty kids. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it just goes to show that, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a case for a more deeply humanizing approach because after mm-hmm. all, we are just all human beings trying to make it. Yeah. And we're not just one thing. We're not just in school. We're not just working. We're not just mm-hmm. artists, whatever it is. Like we're whole humans um, mm-hmm. that need to have an opportunity to be as much. So, yeah. So was that enough stalling? All right. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, I was planning in my head. And listen, awesome. right, so the question, the question is, um, top five anything. <laughs> so on Two Dope Teachers and a Mic, we tend to do top five rappers, and that's kind of on brand for Two Dope Teachers. But yeah. for this, you know, I just want to know what your five favorite whatever Something. is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to stick with music. I feel like you'd already posted right. that in my head. Um, yeah. So I feel like I've talked about him once already tonight, uh, Michael Jackson. I know yes. I'm saying this with the caveat of, I know he, there is so many problematic things that oh, yeah. we, we need to acknowledge. Um, yeah. But I grew up like obsessed with Michael Jackson. Like I won yep. an air band competition citywide because I was an oh, impersonator. Man. It was a big <laughs> ah, deal. Yeah. Amazing. Every time I go home, I still get asked to moonwalk by someone. So that's amazing. In no particular order, because I don't know if I yep. could rank them per se, the top five. Michael Jackson songs. And I'm going to go like super yes. nerdy. Like I might, I'm going to get into some unreleased material. Ooh. <laughs> this is so nerdy. Love it. All right. First is my gateway Michael Jackson song. I was in my grandparents' kitchen. It was like one of those, I'm a huge music person. Like I connect very deeply to music. It's yep. like what pulls me out of things when I'm lost in my head and anxious. Yeah. And I was in my parent, grandparents' kitchen doing the dishes. And I just heard the most like ethereal sound from the other room. And it was this little piano piece, so, like a perfect piano riff, like will stick with you forever. And it was like, dun, 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 dun. And then, you know, his, do you know the song already? I think, <laughs> but I don't want to look dumb, so. Oh, Earth Song. Yeah. Michael Jackson. It is like the most beautiful, soul-wrenching song to make you feel like we need to do better by the planet. It's the one yeah. that all the celebrities sang when he died at the Grammys. Yeah. Um, so that for me is like, that was my oh. gateway drug into Michael Jackson. Uh, the next one, I would argue, mm, one of the first CDs, <laughs> you remember those like clubhouse, those like weird little catalogs you could get. And then <laughs> my mom had that. And I was like, we weren't like super well off. So that was how I got yeah. my music is she'd get five free CDs and I'd get to pick them. And oh, there was, nice. there was yeah. not great selection in these clubhouse. <laughs> right, yeah. Like you kind of got like the D list of everyone's like catalog. <laughs> and so there was this one Michael Jackson CD that was like blood on the dance floor, the remixes, Oh, <laughs> but it wow. had some fire songs in there. <laughs> like there was one, it was, um, I want to say it was with Wyclef Jean and it was called too bad. 
and it oh, just had okay, yeah. this like vibe to it like it was like you just had to dance you had to move and it was like a little yeah. bit more on the edgy side yep. for him and i loved that song nice um i love that these are deep cuts like this is amazing cuts. oh yeah like this not what people who are not or less familiar with his work would ever come up with right yeah. <laughs> and i mean okay let's throw into the people just in case they're like i have no sweet clue what she's talking about right now like, <laughs> billy jean yeah oh billy yeah. jean and it's funny as i was going through my like michael jackson awakening i remember i played billy jean for my like i'd already it's a song that's just like it's in our ethos of our culture like the yeah. first time i heard it i was like oh i know this song and i know every line yep. and i know exactly where the beat drops and i know exactly like <laughs> yeah. you just are like i don't even think i've heard it before but i feel like yeah. i've always heard it and but I've it's like but we've it. all heard it yeah <laughs> exactly just, it's endemic to our those, to yeah. our existence yeah totally endemic. yep good word yep yeah <laughs> i've been um, thinking about it in context of COVID, but i realize that it doesn't always have to be bad things yeah <laughs> endemic <laughs> um okay if we're gonna go deep cuts then an unreleased song that okay. i'm everyone needs to go google you'll only find it on like youtube or something it's not on any of the streaming platforms. Oh, okay but it's a song called we've had enough and okay. he wrote it probably like 20 years ago and if you listen to it in our current context i just listened to it again recently and i was like oh, they should release this song right now. It's literally wow. about like him raging against all of these systems and Yo. Uh, the police. It's a song against the police. Dude. <laughs> it's so good. And it has this like epic build. Like it's the most epic, like classic Michael Jackson. Like he gets there that. and then he pulls back and then he gets there and then he pulls back and then he gets wow. to the like crescendo and all of it's like a huge orchestra in the background. Bruh. It's just like the most, I can't believe they never released it. I think it's just because it went after the police. Yeah, um, but it's probably. it's beautiful and it's like his voice wow. just at its best. Oh, I love man. that one. Right, um, and then last one, one, I think I'm on number five. Yep. Mm. Hmm. Maybe something happy. I'm going with a lot of like, <laughs> just something that's like really fun and uplifting. I mean, it's your list. You can make to. it whatever you want it to be. <laughs> oh man, it's his catalog is so big like you can oh i know it's it. this is ambitious like this is ambitious it's ambitious i know i almost feel like i need to jump on my like apple and see like <laughs> absolutely what i have at the top whatever you gotta um, do because i almost want to go back like jackson five if like there's mm. some fire jackson five songs and school. the jacksons yeah. are yeah. hardcore fans that yep. know what that means um yep. uh, can you feel it gets me fired up do you know that one can is it uh wait wait you started singing it. i might just have to make you sing it a little bit oh it's like eh. okay i'm not gonna sing his parts <laughs> it's too high but it's like all know, of the I brothers in the background and like yeah. can you feel it yeah can you feel it can yeah. you feel it yeah and then he comes there in and does his little heart yeah. it's so Got good it. yes that no that one's good that one's good dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like they just have the best Quincy Jones. Oh yeah. Oh, those like they just had the best bass. Underappreciated arranger totally. as well. That's amazing. Um, I would hey. I, I I like this. I would um I, I can't I can't stop listening to Smooth Criminal though. Like oh, that's another one. Oh, that so been good. One. And then do you yeah. remember the 40-minute Moonwalker video that was oh, just like did I have oh all of gosh. those VHS to the point that I had like <laughs> ruined them because I'd rewound them so many times to like learn his routines before YouTube. So sick. smooth criminal. It's okay, so stuff. after this is it's funny because this story for me completely aligns with the rise of the internet because there okay. was no internet when I first discovered him. It was just something on the TV, and then I like mm -hmm. I could never hear it again. I was like, 
where did that sound go? Right. Like you couldn't go right. Google it. And so in the next year, the internet started becoming available for like regular folk like yep. me. And the first video that I was able to watch online on his website was smooth criminal. That was smooth my criminal. very first Michael Jackson video I'd ever seen. And yeah. I remember just being mesmerized. Like I was a musical theater oh, kid. I was all about it. So it was like this Fred the drip, Astaire. like the drip is ridiculous. Oh, like he's like so the whole, good. like, everything yeah oh if i put amazing. on any hat with a brim the first thing i'll always do is like do, 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 like just like it's so memorable the dancing the and he choreographed most of his own stuff don't know if you knew that yeah but he was like amazing. man of many talents definitely well, yeah go. there it is no doubt where i love the top five uh where do people find your work and what are you working on right now well the podcast season two launching yeah tomorrow so tomorrow tomorrow um, by the time so, this episode drops it will mm-hmm. the, the season two will out. already be out yep so you can find it basically anywhere you stream podcasts we also have a website it's educrushpod.com i'm actually yep. i'm trying to be really intentional this season to make my content more accessible because i know not everybody likes to learn through listening so i'm trying to make sure there's a blog post that goes along for oh, everything cool. as, as well as something visual so the website's going to house all of that um, I feel like, like came up today. I'm most active on Twitter though. Yes. I tweet daily, multiple times a day. It's <laughs> yep. kind of a, I wonder, I'm almost wondering if it's starting to become a problem, but I love it. And it's how I meet my people. So yep. it's at Natabasso. So it just like collapse my two names. Yep. Easy place. to remember. Easy yeah. To remember. It kind of rolls off the tongue, right? Like Natabasso. Yeah. That's right. right. Well, listen, thank you for the disruption that you are doing. Um, It it invigorates me. I really enjoy uh, the content and just asking the hard questions. And, you know, appreciate you taking the time to be on Habitually Disruptive. Anytime and shining that light right back at you. Thank you for what you're doing and creating all these spaces. And this is like your third podcast. I love it. Yeah, it's wild. (laughs) Thank you so (laughs) much. All righty. And keep disrupting. And uh, I'm Gabriel Munoz. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode, y'all. Peace.